Good afternoon. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman here, Alan Blackman and Jenny Giblin joining me this afternoon. First, from tomorrow, a little help is on the way to ease slightly the cost of living crisis. A survey out yesterday showed an overwhelming 90% same cost is the main factor when buying goods or services. So from tomorrow, over a quarter of Kiwis will see a boost to their incomes, including 880,000 pensioners and veterans and 52,000 students. Around 223,000 workers will receive an increase to the minimum wage. That will increase by $1.52 and superannuation will increase by over $100 for a couple per fortnight and nearly $70 for individuals. So those are just two of uh, many announcements with us. Is economist Susan St. John, an associate professor at the University of Auckland and spokesperson for the Child Poverty Action Group. Susan, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. How do you read these uh, increases from tomorrow, Susan? <laughs> well, we don't normally make such a big fuss about them. They're the sorts of changes that happen every year. The reason that we're getting so much attention is that it's such a large amount because inflation has been so high. So we shouldn't really interpret it as being anything other than a holding change. It's not going to solve the poverty problem. After the 1st of April, people on benefits are going to notice over the month going into winter that their position starts to erode again because inflation hasn't been stopped in its tracks. That's going to impact uh, pretty smart, pretty carefully, pretty pretty fully on those people. Looking at some of the figures here, so a a family on a benefit with children will receive an extra just over 40 bucks a week and a sole parent will receive an extra uh, $31.83 a week. Uh, It is increasing by the rate of inflation. Is it keeping up? Well, it's very complex. The, The wealthy system is very convoluted. So take that sole parent, Mm. for example, she'll get $31 more in her net benefit and she'll get, if she's got one child, to get another $9 in working families. That's just the inflation adjustment. But because she's got that 40, it means that she'll find she gets $10 less accommodation supplement and it may affect other payments that she's needing to close the deficit that she's got between what she actually needs and what she's getting. So she may lose temporary additional support, for example, uh, and not be terribly much better off. Okay, so that's uh, interesting. Jenny Giblin. Yeah, it's interesting. It's hard to imagine that an extra $40 a week is really going to change the dial for some of these families. Um, you know, I think there needs to be significant investment into these um, into these families um, over a sustained period. And I'm I'm interested um, to ask Susan about the fact that you know the government in, in 2017 under the previous prime minister um, announced plans to reduce child poverty. There was a new minister appointed, and legislation was put into place. Um, but but in the year to t- June 2022, uh, from what I understand, the primary measures have been completely unchanged. Is that something that she has a, a has a, a view on as to why um, we haven't seen any significant movement because child poverty is not a new thing. We've been talking about it as a country for a long time. 
is it simply a um, a lack of investment into the financial investment into these families, Susan, or is it something yes, else? Part, no, in good part, that's what it is. So that this inflation adjustment is by no means the systemic change that are, that is actually need, needed. Um, we've got such a convoluted welfare system. Uh, desperately needs to be simplified and modernised and made more generous, but we haven't had that fundamental rethink of it yet. Alan, <clears throat> um, I guess I've got two questions about this. The first one, um, so the government's sort of doling out more money and everything um, to make up for inflation, but is that in itself inflationary? I mean, I'm no economic expert or whatever, but is that just going to sort of contribute to the problem and not solve it? And Well, no, I don't see how that could happen. If it meant, for example, that families go less frequently to the food bank for a few months, um, that's not going to be inflationary. Okay. And the, the second one, I guess Jenny sort of brought up, was um, about the poverty line and, and children in poverty. And, and as part of the story, 120,000 children still below the poverty line. Um, you're a spokesman for Poverty Action. What actually constitutes poverty? What There must be a number, I'm assuming. Um, well, I think what number you're referring to is the number that are in hardship, and of that number, about 60,000 are in severe mm-hmm. hardship. There yep. are all kinds of other income measures, um, which get quite confusing. But if we just think about the hardship measures, mm-hmm. what we need are measures by the government that directly affect that, so directly impact on the poorest families in New Zealand. And one thing that they could do immediately is make sure that the full working for families is paid to all low-income families instead of excluding the worst off from quite a substantial portion of the working for families payment. Why does, why does that happen? Um, it's, it's a misguided ideology around we need to incentivise people to have a job you take a family that's lost work in the cyclone, for example, to say to them that their children should get less so they've got an incentive to work is just embarrassing. Mm. That's a very old-fashioned, old-time old way of, of looking at the whole work issue, and it completely underplays the work that goes into bringing up children. So a sole parent on her own with three children doing the very best you can by those children and not able to have a paid job, um, mm. well, isn't that understandable? She's, she's working. She's looking after those children. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm interested, uh, Susan, actually, uh, the, the comment you made, how uh, our system is convoluted and actually just reading through and uh, seeing some of the uh, aspects where you might get um, – uh, an increase in one aspect uh, of your benefit, but then that might affect something like your accommodation supplement or what have you. Uh, what would a more streamlined uh, um, welfare system look like? How? Wh- where would you start if you want to say, okay, we're going to have a real conversation about streamlining welfare in this country? Well, first of all, it has to be adequate so that people aren't wasting so much time trying to go to the food banks or to get a loan or uh, try to get family to help. All those things are very counterproductive. So making it much more generous, much easier to access, fewer um, hurdles to overcome to get into the system, and then making sure that we do the basic things like 
treating people as individuals, adults as individuals, so that we don't penalise couples, for example, simply because they are a couple and pay them a much lower benefit. That, again, is another feature of the very archaic way our welfare system is structured. And it's no wonder when we look at couples with children, and we've just been doing a bit of work on model families and CPEGs and trying to work out how much difference these latest changes will make. And it's certainly the couples with children who are the worst off. <laughs> well, it doesn't take much imagination to see how that could be fixed. And again, thinking about the generosity, we want families to have enough money in their basic benefit to be able to pay for their basic costs. Okay, so, all right, so just uh, a, uh, there are ways to simplify it, but it'll take a bit of a rethinking. Uh, very, before, before you go, uh, Susan, um, the, just the minimum wage, just to mention on this, increasing by $1.50 per hour. I can imagine a lot of small, thousands of small business owners looking at that and going, oh, my gosh, from tomorrow, things are just going to get a lot harder for my business that I've worked so hard on. Um, I have some sympathy for that view. Just turning it to see how families themselves are affected, one of the tragedies is that if you are on a low income, not on a benefit, on a low income, um, you will hit the threshold for working for families. And then if you get an increase, such as we're seeing with the minimum wage, that will take you further over that threshold. So you'll then end up having to pay back um, a sizable portion, 27% of that extra uh, in your working for families payment. And this is another one of the structural changes that's needed to fully index all parts of the welfare system. So our threshold currently sits at 42700 It should be 52000 Okay. All right, very good. Uh, that's uh, economist Susan St. John from the uh, University of Auckland. Look, it's going to be affecting uh, 223,000 workers uh, to re- receive this increase from tomorrow uh, and 880,000 pensioners are going to get a boost to their incomes. Give us a shout, 2101. How, you, how do you feel about this increase? Is it going to make much of a difference or is it not? I'd love to hear from you. Yes or no? Why or why not? 18 past four, the panel, RNZ National. Well, National Leader Chris Luxon has taken aim at red tape in an ambitious plan to boost renewable energy production, announcing plans to change resource consent rules to get renewable energy uh, generation built faster. The National Party says its new energy policy will double the amount of electricity produced from solar, from wind, geothermal plants. The Prime Minister said today, well, the proposal to cut red tape and making it easier to get renewable energy consents is a big part of the RMA reforms the government is already working on. With us is Massey University Emeritus Professor of Sustainable Energy and Climate Mitigation, Ralph Sims. Professor Sims, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace, and kia ora, Jenny and Alan. Hey. Well, kia ora, Ralph, and I, th- I was thinking, who to speak on this? This is your field, Ralph. Take it away. You're the professor of sustainable energy. Yeah, is this just a... For 50 years, so it's good that National uh, 
supporting the increase of renewable electricity because there's no doubt that we, we need it in the future. We've got 80 to 85% renewable electricity now and we can be proud of that without any subsidies. But demand for electricity is going to increase and this isn't just electric vehicles. I've got, well, I've got my uh, electric car outside <laughs> being charged the solar panel off my roof in oh. sunny Palmerston North wow. as we speak. <laughs> but it's also electric buses, uh, trains, trucks, e-bikes, and there's even a two-seater electric plane buzzing around New Zealand. So for transport, there's going to be more electricity. For heat, there's going to be more electricity displacing coal and gas, whether it's somebody's front room or whether it's Fonterra milk-producing plant. Um, this needs to be done because, obviously, the coal and gas is high greenhouse gas emissions. But just, just on the um, national statement, yeah. it's interesting that we've got 17 wind farms in New Zealand producing around 1,050 megawatts in, um, of capacity. But we've got another 10 or 12 that have been consented in the past few years, and they're just sitting there ready to be constructed when the electricity demand increases, because it's been stable for a while. So it hasn't been a major drawback on consenting, and geothermal plants are sitting there as well already consented. And just one final point on the, um, uh, on the electricity uh, NZ concept from National is that missing from it, there's a small mention of bioenergy and Huntley power station running on coal has just been tested by Genesis on wood pellets, which is what's been done oh. in Scandinavia and places for decades. And of course, we can use all our slash that's in the headlines <laughs> at the moment because then you take out the logs and the wood chips. And just finally, there's not a single mention of offshore wind and there's a new industry evolving there and those involved are looking to the government to give them the right regulations so that they can uh, explore and develop. It. What a way of connecting the dots, Ralph, using the and gargantuan amount of slash uh, and put those into wood chips. You heard it here first from the panel. Let's go around uh, the forum on this. Jenny, uh, you first on this. Well, look, I thought this was a really good step forward from National. Um, anything reducing red tape and speeding up consenting, I, I think, is a, is a good idea. I just wondered whether there, maybe, whether there's, a, a, I guess, a wider role um, beyond kind of regulations in terms of um, boosting into the sector and I was sort of thinking about whether or not they might do any sort of targeted investment in, in early stages of, of innovation in this space and I just wondered, I, I, what I noticed off was there was sort of a um, missing was around hydrogen so I just wondered if that was something else that they might, that they perhaps um, could, have, could have picked up on but I think it's a pretty good step forward. All right Alan. Um, I guess this is the only time, as I just heard on the news just been, that Greenpeace and National are on the same side of anything. <laughs> I was absolutely gobsmacked <laughs> um, that Greenpeace congratulating National on this. Um, well, look, hey, I'm a, a first, chem- yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. I'm a chemist, and chemists are going to save the world in this respect because what we need to put money into is photo- photovoltaics and battery technology because the planet is solar. It has been since it was formed way back when. Um, so solar power is, is the way to go. And obviously we need to be able to store that. And so therefore battery technology, this is where the government should be investing truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of money into these two areas. And um, I guess no, no mention of possible more hydroelectric. I mean, the only reason that we're 80 to 85% now renewable is because of things like the Clyde Dam, which, if you remember, back in the 80s was absolutely pilloried. You know, Muldoon got hell for that. I, can, but, yep, but, I know, I recall yeah, that. I but, recall that. Do you want to respond to that, Ralph? 
Yes, well, for Jenny, for hydrogen, it's a possibility, but using electricity to produce a hydrogen by electrolysis, uh, if you can use the electricity directly, you're much better off, but you can store the hydrogen. So there's big debate about its future. So let's not write it off, but maybe there's been quite a bit of debate in recent times, and maybe the hydrogen future is not as exciting as what some people might think. Mm. Ah. Alan's uh, okay. solar PV and batteries, I fully agree. Yeah. And the interesting thing is the <laughs> prices of both of those have come down hugely mm, in yeah. recent times, which is why I've got a solar panels and, and I've got a battery, and, um, and it, it's working really well for me. I'm saving my... It cost me a dollar sixty in my car to get down from uh, Palmerston North to Wellington. <laughs> no way! Kilometers. Wow. You're kidding me! Sheesh. That's the money. That's the money I would have got if I'd have sold my excess electricity to the grid. Instead, it's going into my car mm. and dollar sixty to get to Wellington. It's not too bad. Oh, that's brilliant. Just finally, Professor Sims, as someone said um, uh, on Twitter, is deregulation the solution to climate change? Oh, we certainly need encouraging regulations. It's very complex. The whole electricity market is um, uh, questionable, and also the oil and gas are giving permission for more oil fields, gas field exploration, and even coal in Southland, would you believe, has been approved. And yet we know we cannot produce any more CO2, and we have to leave about three-quarters of all oil, gas, and coal under the ground if we're going to stay below the temperature increase that we think is uh, acceptable. Unless, unless us chemists can make CO2 remediation a thing. That's true, Alan. That's true. There's a lot of work going on on that. It's quite exciting. Good on you. Space. We're going to form a committee we, here. We, we can do it on the panel. We need more chemists. Come to AUT, people. Here we go. <laughs> Ralph, always a pleasure. Thank you for uh, your expertise on this. Okay, that's fine. Thanks, uh, thanks That Rob. is uh, Massey University Emeritus Professor of Sustainable Energy and Climate Mitigation. Uh, extraordinarily clued up on this particular issue, isn't he? So mm. really good to have Ralph on the program here. All right, here's one. I've got a question for you. If you were interviewing me for my job, what would you want to know about me? If you were the CEO of our company, what would your five-year plan be? If someone wrote a biography about you, what do you think the title should be? <laughs> you could be asked these in a job interview. So I want to ask you, oh. the nation, what is the worst or a, a pretty borderline job interview question you've been asked? Here's one, um, which is quite uh, – well, you can't get past this. I was once asked, if I rang your mother, how would she describe you? <laughs> At length, probably. And I, and I said, well, unless you have a Ouija board, she wouldn't because she's been dead for 10 years. I could maybe have been more polite in my answer, but honestly, if you don't know someone's relationship with their family, maybe wait until you know them. Oh, that could have been very triggering for many people. By the way, mm. I had a great relationship with mum. But I could have also been very upset thinking about her death. So it was just wrong all around. around. By the way, I didn't get the job, <laughs> and I didn't want the job after that. Yeah. How about that, Jenny, for an interview question? Uh, if I rang your yeah. mother, how would she describe you? Well, my mother's in the same place as yours. So she'd, Me too. It would yeah. be a bit difficult to talk to my mother as well. Um, 
You know, it's quite it's quite odd. I had a um I had a job interview about fourteen years ago. Last job interview I had, and uh, the questions were so off that I halfway through the interview I stood up and said, "Thanks very much for your time, but I think that's the end of the interview for me." And decided there and there on the spot there was no way I wanted to work work for that particular. Are you serious, Jenny? Wow. I, totally. Yeah, it was with a council, and I thought there's no way I can work for this council with these questions. They were they were so off. So um, that's wow. my that's my um, last interview I ever had. Can you, you don't have to sort of repeat them, Adam Van Eyden. Is there a is, is there a a question that really? I mean, what was the flavour of them? Well, well, really, in relation to me, it was to do with family situation, and and did I think with with I have five children, and did I think I'd still be able to continue working and and um, balancing a family of five kids? At which point I thought, Good God, I'm out of here. Don't want to work for these people. Mm. God. Yeah, pretty off. Oh. Great. Far out, <clears throat> Alan. Oh, um, I've I really haven't had any sort of weirdo questions. I think because you know in academia it's very um, just you know questions on a piece of paper and yes. everything, and there's you know no, nothing out of the ordinary there. So, but the you know, very very down the line, very structured. Very, very structured. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. None of this. You know, yeah. if I was a fruit, what fruit would I be? Well, I've had that. Right? <laughs> I, I, I had that. That's why I put. Yeah, I had that about um, eighteen years ago, eighteen twenty years ago. Oh, if you're a fruit, God. and I, I was just really, I thought, my gosh, what am I going to say to that? And I, you know, what I said, a durian, no, S- smelly but nice on the inside. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you know, do you know what I said? <laughs> I don't know. When they said, what sort of fruit would you describe yourself? Just give it. I said a kumquat. <laughs> <laughs> Which nobody knows because, what they are. <laughs> because you never know what you're going to get. How about that? <laughs> I do Very wonder, good. Wallace, you know, when we go into these interview situations, yeah. and they're pretty formal, aren't they? And, um, and and it's kind of quite hard to, for you, if you're being interviewed or you, you, you are the interviewer, to kind of get a sense of what personality is like. And, yes. Um, because presumably by that, by the point you're getting down into into that sort of that last sort of final round, and you presume they've, they've checked off your skill set, you you presume you sort of you're part you're, you're part of that shortlisted um, group. You do kind of need to have some questions in there that try and give insights into your personality to find out whether your personality fit is going to work within the organisation. That's why they say it. Yeah, a uh, couple here. The yeah, honest... but yes. Not about not necessarily asking what your mother thinks of you. I think that's pretty off. <laughs> okay, what about this? When are you planning, as someone texts you, when are you planning to have kids? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. No. no. I well, answered, that was kind of where my... Mm, mm. I answered, I'm not going to answer that. I was 24 at the time. I got the job. Oh, very good. Another one Ooh, here. The honest, interview, the honest interview question, what's seven cubed? Oh, sheesh. <laughs> Adam Blackman and Jenny Giblin on the panel. <laughs> 